Yes, Lord, we long to see your face. We long to see you, to be with you. We miss you. We, we long to dwell with you. Lord, thank you that we get to sing this morning and just worship you. Thank you that we got to sing and just worship you and dwell in your presence together. Lord, please be with us now as we hear the word preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Uh, for the kiddos, feel free to head to children's ministry. Um, head to the back for that. And uh, well, church, this morning, we had the privilege of welcoming a guest speaker, uh, Logan Thune, uh, to address us from God's word. Uh, a few words about Logan. Uh, Logan serves as a pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, where he was ordained in 2019. He's married to Zoe. Uh, and the two of them are raising four young children, including eight-month-old Claire. Eight months, right? Uh, nine months, sorry. Nine months. Uh, she's here with us today. Um, so Logan works full-time in the financial services industry uh, and also serves on the board of a small but growing Christian classical school in Sioux Falls. Uh, I had the opportunity to have dinner with him last night. What a pleasure that was uh, with, with Logan and Zoe and Claire and, uh, and the Montoyers were there as well. We were talking Christian classical schools. Um, and I learned a lot, we learned a lot from him that we're gonna take and hopefully apply to what we're working to do now uh, to build a, a Christian classical school here uh, in Johnson County. Um, but what I saw the most, I saw a man who works hard, I saw a clear and strategic thinker, I saw a man who was a passion to raise up individuals who passionately love the Lord, and someone who's dedicated to leading and caring for his family well. So I'm grateful that he's here with us today, uh, and I'm really looking forward to what he has to share uh, from the Word. So uh, please join me welcoming Logan up to the pulpit as he comes to open the Word for us this morning. Providence Community Church. Um, as Dove said, my name is Logan Thune. I'm from Emmaus Road Church in Sioux Falls, and on behalf of the elders in our church there, uh, bring greetings and affection to you. Uh, it's a joy to be here with you this morning, um, and I'm very excited to be bringing God's word to you. We're going to be in Psalm 85 this morning, um, so you can turn there and put a placeholder there. Uh, we're going to begin this morning with a brief history lesson on the tyrant Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And if you don't know who that is, Antiochus was a Hellenistic Greek king who ruled over the land of Judea in the second century BC. Uh, he was notoriously known in history for his harsh persecution of the people of God during the, the intertestamental period. And as a ruler, he was so conceited and so crazy that he called himself Zeus Epiphanes. But the people that he ruled over gave him the more fitting nickname by calling him simply Madman. Before Antiochus's reign over the land of Judea, Jewish culture and customs were tolerated. They were protected and mildly respected in the larger Greek empire. But after he ascended the throne, Antiochus became very unfavorable and hostile to the people of God. The, the Jewish people were violently tyrannized. They were marginalized. Some of their religious practices were even forbidden. It was a bleak situation for the people of God. We don't find ourselves 
in exactly similar circumstances as the Jews did under the tyranny of Antiochus. But Christians today in our nation, we do find ourselves living under pressure. And we do live in a place and a time in history that doesn't really make any coherent sense apart from understanding it in light of God's sovereignty and his judgment. We're certainly not being fed to the lions or facing any overt violence as Christians, but I think it would be also incorrect to say that Christians have it better off today than maybe we even did a few decades ago. And without being idealistic or fanciful about the past, maybe you can recall a broad and a favorable place and a time long before Drag Queen Story Hour inhabited our libraries and critical race theory poisoned our classrooms and Obergefell and Bostock defiled our land. Maybe you can recall days of God's blessings when you didn't need to navigate through HR courses to hold a job in corporate America or when you didn't hear that crisis pregnancy centers were being referred to as places of torture. But those days seem long ago, don't they? I think it's safe to say that Christians in our day, on the whole, are living under noticeable pressure. You could say that, that we're living under a sort of, of soft tyranny, and it makes you wonder. What, what are we as Christians supposed to do in times like these? What is God up to with us right now? What is he teaching us? And how should God's people respond under affliction? Psalm 85 provides us with answers uh, to these questions. And so without further ado, if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 85, um, let's read it together. I think it should be up on the screen as well. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is God's word, and let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. Would you use your word to, to point us to your son, Jesus? Would your spirit help your word to sink deeply into our hearts, to be lived out in each of our lives here this morning? Be glorified now, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Well, our text this morning reminds us that remembrance of former mercies and future promises strengthens our faith in the midst of present adversity. Remembrance of former mercies 
and future promises strengthens our faith in the midst of present adversity. That's the main point of Psalm 85, and it's my aim this morning to encourage you to trust the Lord in times of adversity and pressure and to help you to orient yourself so that you are seeing clearly and responding rightly to this pressure. But before we get there, I want to provide you with some context for Psalm 85. Most commentators situate Psalm 85 in the post-exilic period after the Jews had returned from their captivity in Babylon. If you're unfamiliar with this Old Testament time period, the, the Jewish nation was exiled in Babylon from about 604 BC until about 537 BC. Then under the reign of, of King Cyrus the Great, they were allowed to return to Jerusalem where they began to rebuild the temple and the city walls that had been left in ruins there. So many commentators believe that Psalm 85 was likely written after the Jews had left Babylon to return to their homeland and before the middle of the, the fifth century BC, which is when the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, uh, was thought to be written. This psalm is also viewed as being written at a time when God's people, though now freed from their exile, were still experiencing God's displeasure and judgment because of their sin and unfaithfulness. There's a slight sadness, a noticeable nostalgia that sort of hangs over this text. Matthew Henry writes of this context, the church here was in a deluge. Above were clouds and below were waves. Everything was dark and dismal. We aren't uh, quite sure exactly of the context or the occasion or the catastrophe that loomed over the people of God when Psalm 85 was originally written. Uh, but we do know that, that John Calvin thought that the one occasion where this psalm was perfectly fitting for God's people to sing was when they were under the cruel tyranny of Antiochus, which came a couple centuries later. It was external pressures that caused the original psalmist to pen these words to God in his desperation. And external pressures viewed as coming from the hand of God have motivated and compelled the people of God to sing this song, Psalm 85, down through all the ages. We might be tempted to think, God, we, we know that you've delivered your people in times past. We know that you love to deliver your people. We've seen that throughout church history. We just aren't sure what you are planning to do with your people now. That's why we need Psalm 85 today. In times of trouble and uncertainty and pressure, this psalm calls the people of God to do four things. It calls you to, to look backward in remembrance, to look upward in request, to look inward in repentance, and to look forward to restoration. So first, let's look back. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. The text says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Notice the, the verbs here are all past tense. You were favorable. You restored. You forgave. You covered. You withdrew. You turned. Shows that the psalmist is focused on what God has done in the past and what that has 
taught him. But looking backward here is not just a daydreaming nostalgia about bygone days of bliss. Though looking backward, this glance is more importantly a Godward glance. The psalmist is staking his claim on the fact that God is as he has always been. He knows that the way that God has acted in the past is how God will continue to act now and into the future. There's a self-consistency in God. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. God is who he is. And when we conform our thinking to his self-revelation, we find firm footing to stand on. This, this remembrance of former mercies strengthens the psalmist's faith in his present trouble. And so church, in unfavorable times, before you do anything else, recall to your mind the great and glorious God of heaven and earth. Ponder what this God is like. He's the God who alone sits in the heavens and does all that he pleases. As Exodus 34, 6 through 7 reminds us, he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. The psalmist opens Psalm 35 with the word, or more specifically the name, Lord, the very same name we see here in Exodus 34. In, in the ESV and in many other modern Bible translations, whenever you see the word Lord printed in small capital letters, it is referring to God's special and personal name, Yahweh, the name that reveals that he is the one who will be what he will be. Herman Bavink says that the name Yahweh reveals that he will be what he was for the patriarchs, what he is now and will remain. He will be everything to and for his people. It is not a new and strange God who comes to them by Moses, but the God of the fathers, the unchangeable one, the faithful one, the eternal self-consistent one who never leaves or forsakes his people, but always again seeks out and saves his own. By using this personal name for God in the very first word and in the very first verse of this psalm, the psalmist reminds us that the God he addresses here is this very same God. He is Yahweh, the self-existent, self-revealing, transcendent Lord. And his attributes don't, they don't even stop there. He's shown himself also to be merciful. According to Psalm 85, what does this God do? Verses 1 to 3 remind us that in God's past dealings with his people, he acted favorably toward them. He, he forgave them and covered not just a part, but all of their sin. He buried it in the ground, and he withdrew his wrath and turned from his anger. He is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Who is a God like this? So let me ask you, have you forgotten your God? Have you let current circumstances overwhelm and cloud out your understanding of who he is? Do you know of his greatness and goodness and mercy? Or have you fashioned him after your own doubts and uncertainties and worries? And have you made him small and trivial? 
If so, this psalm calls you to recall his nature and to remember his mercy and trust that he will not remain angry forever. That's not who he is towards his people. After we look backwards in remembrance, Psalm 85 calls us to look upward in request. So second, we look upward. Turn your attention with me to the earnest requests made in verses four through seven. Text says, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Here the text moves from from the past to the present. We can even notice a perceived agitation of spirit that is present in these verses. There's three rapid-fire questions here in verses 5 and 6, bracketed by two courageous pleas in verses 4 and 7. The psalmist cries out boldly to God because the psalmist knows that God is sovereign over his present distress. And he knows that God's just wrath and anger are the cause of the prolonged pain that the people are experiencing. Notice also the, the rhetorical nature of all these questions. The psalmist seems to ask questions in, in desperation, but these questions he's asking actually demonstrate his faith. How is that so? It's because the answers to, to all of the questions he's asking are assumed before they're even asked to God. He turns upward to God because he knows that God will answer his questions, respond to his pleas. He knows that it is the people of God who have turned from him, and only God can restore them. We see here the the psalmist doesn't turn immediately to his possessions or to pragmatics or to politics for his ultimate solutions to his problems. He turns to God in prayer. I'm not saying that, that prayer takes the place of action or that God doesn't use means to accomplish his purposes, but I am asking what comes first to us and to our hearts? What's your default response under pressure? You know, it's easy for me to get, find a bunch of agitated personalities on Twitter or news articles to get me riled up about the latest thing. I know that that can sometimes let me get distracted from going to God in prayer. So what's it for you? Psalm 85 shows us that the proper response under pressure and under God's apparent displeasure is to look upward. We should pray that God would relent from his anger, that he would pour out blessing on his people. Second Chronicles 7.14 reiterates this response of prayer when it says, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God's people ought to look to God, to beseech his kindness and his covenant-keeping steadfast love. Our plea ought to be what is prayed in verse 7 of Psalm 85. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Give us relief and show us your favor. So when you have requests, do you make them known to God? When you have anxieties and worries, do you cast them on the Lord? Do you know that he cares for you? This psalm teaches us to look upward in request to God, to seek God in prayer, 
And then it compels us to look inward in repentance. So third, we look inward. Calvin says, So faint-hearted in bearing adversity are we, that no sooner does God begin to smite us with his little finger that we entreat him with groaning and lamentable cries to spare us. But we forget to plead what should chiefly engage our thoughts, that he would deliver us from guilt and condemnation. And we forget this, we forget this because we're reluctant to descend into our own hearts and to examine ourselves. Now I want to be clear, this does not mean that I believe Christians to be complicit or guilty of all of our society's woes that I mentioned earlier. We're not conflating here our secular American civil religion with the people and the land that this psalm is referring to. However, having established that, it's right and fitting for God's people to consider how God is using the current pressures we face to purify his people and his church. Look at verses 8 and 9. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. This is the sober-minded response of a humble saint. It's a pause for reflection and repentance. One pastor comments on these verses and says that the petitions have been submitted to God Now it's time for the petitioner to submit himself. How exactly does he do that? First of all, verse 8 says that he hears. Hearing is is active. It's not a, a passive thing that we do. It's expectant and hopeful. It's not pessimistic and grim. The repentant hearer sits silent before the Lord, and he waits for an answer from his gracious word. Secondly, he submits by fearing God. Verse 9 says that salvation is near to the one who fears him. Is your countenance like that? Do you listen when the Lord speaks? Do you fear God? Do you obey his word? Or do you play by your own rules and dabble with sin because you think it's not that serious? If, if that's you this morning, this psalm calls you to examine yourself and then to submit by faith to God and to his word. And notice how much God cares for his people. The end of verse eight shows that he cares for his saints so much that he expressly warns them not to turn back to their folly. Calvin again is helpful when he says, God, perceiving that we are not completely recovered from our vices to spiritual health in one day, prolongs his chastisements without which we would be in danger of a speedy relapse. God purposely continues his corrections for a longer period than we would wish, that we may be brought in good earnest to repent and excited to be more on our guard in future. When God puts pressure on his people, whether because of the sins of the society around them or because of their own, he does it on purpose. But notice, he will not forsake his saints, his righteous ones. Listen, friends, God desires a steadfast people, fully devoted to him, and he will go to whatever lengths necessary to accomplish that purpose, up to and including letting them live in unfavorable circumstances so that they would turn to him in repentance and faith. 
And what does he promise for his genuine saints? He promises that he will speak peace to them. And as Derek Kidner says, what God speaks, he also creates. How's that possible? How's it possible for the the righteous and transcendent God of heaven to dwell with the unrighteous and lowly people of earth? How is it possible for him to speak peace to his rebellious people? And here at last, in searching for an answer, the psalmist looks forward. He looks forward to God's promised restoration revealed in verses 10 through 13 of Psalm 85. So lastly, we look forward. And what incredible promises are found when we look at these verses? Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The psalmist has gone from the past in verses one to three to the present in verses four through nine and now he looks to the future here in these verses. These Promises lift his distressed eyes from the present moment and they set them on the wide and lush plain of the fertile future full of God's kingdom blessings. But what do these these verses mean? How is it that, that peace and restoration are obtained? Verse 10 speaks of four separate attributes of God here. His steadfast love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, and his peace. The the NASB translates those first two attributes instead as graciousness and truth. The KJV uses mercy and truth. It may seem to us like some of these attributes fit neatly together. We can fit together love and mercy and peace on the one hand. Those seem to, to go together. Or righteousness and truth on the other hand, those seem to go together. But how do we get all of these attributes on the same side? How do mercy and truth meet? They're certainly companions. They're not opposed to one another, but they don't yet appear to be fully congruent. So where do they find their true harmony? It's here that the psalmist looks at and hopes in something that he does not yet fully understand. Here, the psalmist prophetically looks forward to the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where God reveals that his mercy and his justice are not opposed to one another. He looks forward to the focal point of all history, to the cross, to the place where all God's attributes kiss. And what flows from this place of peace and reconciliation with God? Verse 11 says that faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. The very same Attributes that God shows to his people in the atonement now spring up in the kingdom of Christ. These are the fruits that grow in the garden of God. And notice how these attributes, they're not just reserved for one small corner of the earth. This promise infers that they'll rise up from the ground, they'll rain down from the sky. This is a a pervasive promise here. Heaven and earth will be filled with this righteousness and this truth. Their glory will come together to dwell among God's people, like the the Shekinah glory that came down to dwell on the tabernacle. And the psalmist here is trusting that this restoration and this revival will not just be true of 
a land in general, but of his land in particular, the land in which the people of God dwell. And in verse 12, we see the the subtle agitation of verses 4 through 7. It turns to a, a calm confidence. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. God's care for his people includes both spiritual and earthly blessings. These things aren't mutually exclusive. And God's spiritual kingdom isn't violated when our temporal needs are met. The psalmist knew this. Do we share the the confidence of the psalmist when it comes to, to our land today? Do we pray that God would pour out his blessings on us and his church because we're his there's no problem in wanting to live in a, in a nation that experiences the blessings of God. So may we pray that God would bring revival to us. In the midst of external pressure and affliction, the psalmist sets his hope on the fact that God will give what is good and he will bring restoration and revival to God's people. His faith was strengthened as he recalled God's former mercies and as he clung to God's future promises. But guess what? The psalmist, the psalmist only dimly saw these realities from far off. He was looking through a blurry lens. Our vantage point is better than the psalmist's vantage point was. And as we close this morning, I want to show you why we ought to have greater hope than the psalmist did. When the, the psalmist looked backward... He saw God's deliverance in the Exodus and in other examples throughout Old Testament history. But when we look backward, we see God's ultimate deliverance at Calvary, where God once and for all delivered and saved his people, satisfied his righteous wrath, and defeated sin and Satan and death. And when the the psalmist looked upward, he prayed under the ministry of the Old Covenant and did not yet know that there would be a mediator of a better covenant to come. But when we look upward, we see Christ as our advocate, sitting at the right hand of the Father, always living and eager to make intercession for his saints. And as a permanent high priest, he pleads our case forever and seals it with his own name. When the psalmist looked inward, he knew that his repentance and his fearing and hearing of God wasn't perfect. He knew that his crippling sin would require a savior. And yet when we look inward and when we see our sin, we know of the great Savior who completely and perfectly obeyed the Father. And in Christ, not only is our sin forgiven, but we are enabled now to walk in obedience through him. And finally, when the psalmist, when the psalmist looked forward, he may have expected blessings and revival and restoration to flow on the people and the land of Israel in his day. But when we look forward, We know that the kingdom of God that was inaugurated in the victorious resurrection of Christ will continue to grow throughout history until its consummation at the end of history. We know that one day the Great Commission will actually be fulfilled and that God will pour out his blessings not just on one nation and one land, but on every nation around the globe until the promise is fulfilled that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, as Habakkuk 2 14 says. And so if the, the psalmist had reason for optimistic faith in the troubling times that he faced, how much more should our faith 
be strengthened as we live under the current pressures of our time. In this negative world that we live in, may the victory of Christ and the peace that he has spoken to his people give them hope to press on in quiet endurance. And as verse 6 says, may God revive us again so that we might rejoice in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your reviving and life-giving word. We thank you that you are a God who never changes. We thank you that your steadfast love and your grace and mercy that you've shown us in the past is what you continue to show to us today. We thank you that you are a God who hears our prayers. And God, we thank you for the glorious promises that you have set before your people. Lord, may we never fail to hope in what's to come and in what you're doing. We ask that you'd give us strength and faith in our present circumstances, that you would bring revival and restoration to our land, and that you would help us to live faithfully under the pressures that we face today. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.